The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. John Gibbons is with us for our weekly environment spot. And John, Ben told us in the 505 how Shell, the oil major, had profits last year of over 36 billion euro. The highest in its history, which suggests it's profiting off what ends up as being the exceptionally high bills that we all have to pay for electricity and home heating and for filling our cars with tanks of petrol or diesel. But there's another angle I want to examine with you on this. One of the excuses that Shell and all the various other oil majors give is that, well, what they're doing with the profits is, is that they're reinvesting it in sustainable energy as an alternative to oil and gas production in the future. And that is a load of crap, isn't it? Uh, good evening, Matt. Yeah, that's a sort of a shell game, if you'll pardon the pun, that's been going on with uh, the fossil fuel industry for decades. If I take you back uh, to about 20 years ago, BP uh, re- renamed themselves from British Petroleum to Beyond Petroleum and they changed their logo to have a sunflower in it, which was marvellous stuff, fantastic PR, complete nonsense. So what they did essentially was they set up uh, a piddly little renewables unit, which they scrapped after five or six years because it wasn't making money uh, fast enough. And I suppose, Matt, if you think about it, what do these uh, oil companies actually do, these energy companies? They don't make anything. They simply stick a pipe in the ground and extract stuff that was there already. So that's why the fossil fuel industry is and has been the most profitable, the most lucrative industry in the history of the world because it's the easiest industry in many respects. Any idiot can stick a pipe in the ground and extract gas and extract oil, process it a bit, stick it in a ship, make a fortune. Shell apparently last annual report for 2021 said 12% of its capital expenditure went into renewables and energy solutions, as they call it. Now, there are activist groups who say it's actually 1.5% for genuine renewables such as wind and solar. And here's the really worrying thing. There's actually more exploration for oil and gas continuing to go up. Our consumption and the emissions as a result of the use of fossil fuels are not reducing they're actually increasing. That's right. It's it's a crazy situation that we find ourselves in that we're bringing renewables on stream at the fastest rate in history. And this is true and it's an enormous success. But because we have failed to cap overall energy consumption, essentially all the renewables are doing is taking the edge off it. But fossil fuel use is continuing to expand. It's continuing. It hasn't yet even plateaued, Matt, which is a pretty extraordinary situation. And as your statistic correctly said, uh, an NGO called Global Witness are currently taking legal action against Shell in the US, they've identified that most of what Shell is labelling as renewable projects, for example, they're dressing up natural gas, otherwise known as fossil gas, and they're pretending that that is a renewable uh, energy thing. It's the kind of language that you hear here in Ireland as well, where people are attempting to pass off gas and say, well, gas isn't so bad because it's not oil or because it's not coal. Gas, fossil gas, is a pure fossil fuel. When you burn it, you get vast amounts of carbon emissions. And not only that, with fossil gas, you also get fugitive methane emissions. So the notion that we can magically transition from oil, from coal onto gas is an absolute non-starter on so many levels. 
Let's move on. The most read story in the Irish Times website today is about the golf clubs in North County Dublin who are complaining of intolerable noise and fumes from planes departing Dublin Airport's new runway. Uh, in particularly, the Forest Little Golf Club uh, is having problems with members giving up because of what's happening. Now, given that you don't like golf courses and that you don't <laughs> like aviation, you must find it hard to take a side in this particular dispute. Ah, uh, no, that's, that's a bit hard. I've actually hacked very, very poorly around one or two golf clubs in North Dublin, so I, I, I feel their pain. But this is this is an interesting story. I mean, when I was looking into the background to it earlier on, Matt, for example, I came across a study from California that discovered, or that established, I should say, that people living within six miles or ten kilometres of an airport, of a major airport like Dublin Airport, they experience higher levels of asthma, higher levels of COPD, which is respiratory disease, and higher levels of heart disease. So basically, living near an airport is bad for your health. Why is it bad for your health? It is to do with, obviously, elevated levels of um, emissions from, from, from the fumes from aviation. It's also to do with the stress of continuous exposure to noise, even even behind double glazing. That continuous exposure to noise, that, that rattle you get in your chest, that actually causes your adrenal system to kick in and you become tense and that in turn stresses your cardiac system. So long-term exposure to noise and stress is really, really dangerous for human health. And for all the legitimate complaints of the golfers, there are people pointing out, well, actually, golf golfers only come and play maybe around for four hours a week. There's lots of people living in close proximity to the airport who live with this on a daily basis. Yes, they do. And I think this is really brushed under the carpet. And it's one of these things that we brush under the carpet in Ireland and elsewhere because we like to have access to the airports. So if we said, for example, we really care about people in North Dublin and we want, for example, to restrict the the amount of uh, flying in and out of Dublin Airport, well, there would be hell would break loose, Matt, and you know it, because the Irish public demand the right to travel as often as they like. 35 million passenger journeys in 2019 in and out of Dublin Airport, 35 million for a for 5 million people. We, we believe that it is our God-given right to fly as often as we like. And here we have some victims who are the people living in proximity to this. And essentially, Matt, it's tough luck. We're not interested in their, in their concerns. It's noise pollution, but they're also giving out about the, the fumes. That's and right. The aviation fumes if you're feeling the burning of the aviation fuel must be pretty nauseating. Well, as I mentioned, that Californian study identified the actual uh, fumes as part of the reason. It isn't just about noise. It isn't just about stress. It is actually inhaling of these vapours. It's sort of like living near living near a motorway, uh, if you like, except this motorway is directly over your head. And also, instead of getting diesel fumes, you're getting uh, aviation kerosene, which is extra tasty. Now, tell me about solar geoengineering. Well, geoengineering is, uh, I suppose you could start by saying, Matt, that we've been geoengineering the planet for the last couple of centuries, right? For example, every year we tip about 50,000 million tonnes of heat trapping CO2 and methane into the atmosphere. So in a sense, that's what's been described as an uncontrolled geoengineering experiment. And it's not going all that well. So... If you like, that's the problem. We know that we're heating up the planet because of all of the addition of heat trapping gases. So where geoengineering comes into it is this is the idea that, OK, maybe we can reverse that effect. 
So, for example, in 1991, um, there was an explosion of a, a Mount Pinatabo in Indonesia. That was a massive volcanic eruption, the largest eruption of the 20th century. That threw a massive amounts of gas and ash into the stratosphere. That had a global cooling effect, Matt, of 0.6 degrees for two years. Eventually, it washes out of the, of the stratosphere. Now, the scientists used that at the time. They knew it was going to blow, so they used it to study global warming and global cooling. So they, they, they know that if you inject sulfates at high altitude, you get a global cooling effect. But... As Mount Pinatabo showed, it washes out. So the, the proposal, if you like here, and this is backed by geniuses like Bill Gates, which always makes me very, very nervous. Uh, but anyway. Oh, the, you're not one of these anti-Bill Gates oh, conspiracy not anti theorists, at all. are not, you? Not at, oh, heavens no, not a conspiracy theorist. I'm always concerned about people, billionaires outside of their lane, Matt, where, you know, you get rich selling, selling computer software and next thing you're an expert in everything. That's what worries me about guys like Bill Gates and our, our mutual friend Elon. So anyway, uh, what's been pushed here is the idea that we will, uh, if you like, have a fleet of airlines to fly around the world and inject uh, sulfates into the into the stratosphere and and basically create, if you like, mimic the Mount Pinatabo effect and put sulfates into into the upper might atmosphere. Might that not be a great idea? It might be a very interesting idea, right? It, who knows? What if it works? Well, that's the thing. First of all, let's say that it does work and we get a cooling effect. That will obviously have a benefit. What it won't do, for example, is stop ocean acidification because that has to do with carbon dioxide at sea level. So it'll have no effect on ocean acidification. It may help with global cooling. So let's say that we manage to take half a degree off global temperatures, which eases off the pressure and, uh, you know, is, is good. Also helps, for example, to reduce the, the melt of ice caps. These are all good things. However... That's scientific progress, John. Well, it, in theory, Matt, it could be. But if you like, this to me suggests that we're drinking at the last chance cafe. Because if you like, the fact that we didn't understand uh, the complexity of our planet has got us into this mess. Now, the problem here is we're attempting or the, what's what's being proposed here is to to sort of technologically bumble our way out of this crisis. And this crisis, by the way, is not primarily a crisis of technology. It is first and foremost a crisis of humans failing to understand our role within the within the, the, the larger biosphere. Now, there's another question, Matt, and this is called the moral hazard. And what I mean by that is, let's just say all our, our usual suspects, right, the fossil fuel industry, uh, big ag and so on, they come into you and say, listen, Matt, great news. They're starting to geoengineer. So we don't have to cut our emissions anymore. Should we just get a few more plane loads of, 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 of sulfates up into the atmosphere and we can pollute away? Now, unfortunately, the reality is we don't know what the long-term effects of that would be. Let's say, for example, that one country, we'll randomly pick a country and say that the US to decides that it needs to to uh, engage in this. And let's say as a result of their geoengineering and the project goes a little bit awry and it shuts down the monsoon in India. Now, India and Pakistan are nuclear powers. What happens then? So their monsoon shuts down. They have hundreds of millions of people uh, facing, facing famine and destruction. What happens then? And this is the problem. Essentially, once you let this particular cat out of the bag, there's no knowing what way it's going to go. John Gibbons, as ever, thank you for joining us. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today FM.